This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. In each episode, we bring you information, insights, ideas, and interviews from some of the industry's top thought leaders. Head to mediasalesmastery.com to help pick the topic and guide the show. This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. I'm your host, Jamie Wood, and we're talking about something slightly different today and taking a very different approach. To celebrate the 10th episode of Media Sales Mastery, we are actually doing our first Media Sales Masterclass on contract negotiation. So why this topic? Simple. As media salespeople, we operate in a highly commoditized market where supply can often outstrip demand. This makes contract negotiation problematic for us. Almost every contract negotiation we undertake has multiple parties, competing interests, and often stakeholders with divergent priorities. You've got the client wanting to grow their business, the agency wanting to demonstrate and deliver value to the client, the media salesperson needing to secure the revenue to achieve their target, our competitors, competing media organizations, or competing parties who are also looking to secure that business, and then you've got the internal stakeholders and fulfillment team within your own business, people who are wanting the highest value or yield with minimal cost of doing business in the back end. The key takeout, people who invest time to master contract negotiation will gain a competitive edge. Our experts today are Liam Lowenlock, General Manager of UM Brisbane, one of Brisbane's leading media agencies. Liam, welcome. Thank you, Jamie. And Gavin McInnes, partner of AJ & Co, one of Queensland's top commercial law firms. Gavin, welcome. Thank you, Jamie. So both of these guys are astute commercial negotiators. I know from personal experience, watching both of them in action, these guys have successfully negotiated multi-million dollar commercial agreements across a large range of industries. So Liam, to frame the convo today, um, I thought it would be good just to give the audience some context. Can you provide a bit of an overview of what a typical contract negotiation looks like from the perspective of an agency and a media organization as well? Well, thanks, Jeremy. I think surprisingly, um, there is still no one size fits all, even in a, a, a me- in the media advertising industry, where you'd think, given how frequently we transact and contract, thinking agency to media partner, or indeed agency to client, you'd perhaps think there was um, more of a well-formed structure and, and a model as to how to do it. But surprisingly, there isn't. So I think um, f- from our point of view, a typical negotiation, there is no such thing. It is probably my, my thought um, and in beyond that um, it's also w- w- when we do negotiate um, there's a lot of struggle because we're trying to price and negotiate on fundamentally something that's quite intangible which is the value of our people um, and the value of the human capital in our businesses as agencies I think when you think about the media in many ways I, I kind of envy them which is not something that an agency leader might might say a lot of the time but the reason I say that is because they have a product which is a bit more tangible they've got amazing inventory they might they have an amazing property a TV property for example we as, a, as agency businesses our best and most compelling advantage we can give to our clients is our people so when you try and negotiate and price those type of things it, it can get a bit of a mess and it, it can be a confusing uh, a confusing arena to, to deal in yeah, it sounds like it's, it's somewhat assigning value to the intangible is a challenge, somewhat from both sides as well, irrespective of, of if you're trading inventory, etc. Um, Gavin, there's a reason obviously I wanted to bring you in was to offer really a counterpoint and I suppose reflecting on that answer. How similar does that sound to maybe other commercial contract negotiations? Are there some fundamentals there? You know, are there universals or does this feel like we're living in something of a media bubble when it comes to our approach to contract negotiation? Look, I think it's the same in all industries to a degree. You're always negotiating with the client first. So when we're asked to do a job, we're, we're pitching for a job, 
we have to balance what we're going to achieve by providing those services to clients, but almost how much remuneration we're able to derive from doing that sort of work. Clients will come to you and compare you with other, other lawyers, number one. So it's, first of all, our first job is to try and get the work. There are lots of, there's a lot of competition in our marketplace as, as any marketplace, and getting the work in the door is the first thing we need to do. So it's about showing the client, first of all, that um, they need to be comparing apples with apples and not apples with oranges. There's always a race to the bottom in some areas of the law. There's obviously cut price conveyancing, cut price wills. People will try and undercut on document production when they're doing a shoddy job. So it's not about price per se, it's the perceived value behind the Mm. product or service you're providing. So I think in that context, it's quite similar. I would agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, from your perspective, Liam, being an agency, very much you're advocating on behalf of a client and so much of going into a contract negotiation with media, somewhat you have to manage and negotiate with the client as well as something of an advocate. Does that that sort of sound like there's an intersection there with you too? Uh, it, there does indeed. I think um, Gavin's absolutely right. You know, we, we, we are in a bubble, but that bubble is quite representative of other bubbles and other, and other industries. We I think we get caught up in how unique and challenging the media industry is. And the reality is every industry has its challenges. And it's great to hear in one sentence, we're all in the trenches together, that, um, you know, there's undercutting and uh, and race to the bottoms in, in other professions and clients that you deal with, Gavin. Um, and, and yeah, I think um, the, the preparation and in our instance being really clear with our clients when we negotiate on their behalf with the media on what they want to achieve um, is something that is sometimes overlooked. Um, And having that preparation and the clarity of what they want to achieve, and secondly, then the trust when we act on their behalf um, to get to a successful outcome uh, is really important. And I've seen it uh, many ways where actually if that alignment hasn't happened with our our client, um, we get to a negotiation point and the client wonders how on earth we got there. And because there are great direct relationships in, in every market in this country, um, that can have quite a bad blowback effect um, mm. if the agency doesn't prepare properly and it's clear on what we want to achieve and why and how it's aligned to what the client wants to achieve. Awesome. Well, look, this is a great setup for today. So we're going to jump into the main topic. The context of this podcast, the reason I started it was because a lot of people in our industry, a lot of the people that I train, a lot of the people that I recruit, they really struggle in the first three to five years of this industry. The reason for that is simple. There's no tertiary qualification for what we do. There are somewhat related fields of study, but you know, going into a business where you're doing commercial negotiation, potentially as a new, a new entrant into the industry with a, a very vast client base, looking at it from the perspective of really having a revenue target to be achieved, so feeling like you've got immediate pressure for revenue performance, seemingly it can feel like there's no leverage there. So so giving people who listen to this podcast some of those fundamental tools in what does good negotiation look like, I think is really valuable. And it's something that typically people learn on the fly and kind of learn by failing. So if we bring it back to the context of these are the people we're talking to, the question I have for you both, and I might start with yourself, Gavin, what are the core elements of a successful contract negotiation across all industries. Okay, look, there are some fundamentals. I've made some notes, but um, every industry requires the negotiation to commence in the same sort of way. And that's by basically breaking the negotiation into parts. You don't want to be looking at the whole negotiation as a, as a pass or fail. There's lots of pieces to that negotiation, and there's lots of, lots of parts that can be a win for each party. Each party in the negotiation wants to have, some, wants to have a win, there can't be a win-lose negotiation, really, other than in, in a litigation, perhaps. And in the law, that's a bit different to com- com- negotiating an outcome in a transactional environment where the parties will be working together moving forward, more than likely, and enjoy a, a fruitful relationship moving forward, as opposed to a litigation context where it's, they want, I want to beat you, 
and there's a, there's a clear winner and a loser. The breaking it into parts in a, in a transactional relationship can allow each party to have some wins, and that's important. Um, I think it's important to go in with, with the idea of having a fair approach. Um, you, don't, you don't want to steamroll somebody, particularly if you want to be working together. And I think this, in the context of this podcast, it's about working together in, in the future. We'll leave, so we'll leave litigation and win or lose scenarios for now. I think that's probably more important to, to focus on transactional relationships and um, deals that are going to have the parties working together moving forward. So I think it's important for the parties to realise that they want to be fair and allow the other, the other party a chance to have some sort of wins in, that, in, the, in the negotiation as well. And there's an approach also about getting, getting to a yes. So you would have often heard about people in the past uh, leading up into convincing people to do something, whether it's little kids eating their greens or it's, or it's, it's someone buying, buying a multi-million dollar company. The more times you can get them to say yes and agree with you and be on the same page, the more likely they're going to be saying yes at the end. So it's a little, little chip, chip away and uh, don't go for the big, big hit at the beginning, the big knockout punch but rather just sort of work your way in the ring until you have a few blows and get the yes at the end. Take control of the negotiation, I think, is important as well. You don't want to let it flounder. You want to be make sure that you are in control of where, where you're going with, the, with your arguments. You want to put, put your, your case forward and um, not have it sort of wishy-washy when I take control of where you're going. I think it's important to prioritise um, what, you, what, you, what you're discussing. Obviously, in, in any negotiation, there might be some little wins and some little losses. So you need to work out where you're willing to give some ground and which, which, which points of the negotiation, which points of the, the argument you need to win. So prioritise what's very important for you and then you can conceptually give away some of the ones you not aren't, aren't as important to you. It's also important to have a counter-offer strategy in place. You're not, going to have, you're not going to win on all points, and a negotiation is both parties having, a, having some sort of win. So a counter-offer strategy is, is a strategy that enables you to have a position you're willing to abide by, willing to, willing to be happy with at the end. Um, certainly, we wouldn't go into negotiation um, for under a contract or a deal, hoping to win, have everything you, you ask for come true. There needs to be a position that you're willing to um, be happy with and that counter-offer strategy is an, an, a strategy that allows you to get to that point. It's important to um, stay on good terms with the person you're negotiating with and that can often be done by questioning rather than demanding. An overbearing um, type personality rather than a collaborative approach is probably not the best way to go. I mean you've all seen it on The Apprentice and these shows on TV where there's someone coming over with the, the heavy hand dominating and they don't often win. The collaborative approach, let's work together, often can, can yield more fruit. So asking questions and questioning why things aren't moving in the direction you would like them to or why you, they can't agree to your terms rather than just demanding will, will certainly break down any roadblocks, I think. Find the points that uh, you agree on and uh, work on those rather than um, being bogged down with the points that you don't. So it's important to get people moving in the right direction together rather than a, a roadblock at the beginning. If you notice that um, there's a few points that you think are going to be contentious, it's very, very silly to start off with those points. Mm, right. Contentious issues should be worked towards the end. So obviously work, on the, um, work and discuss the, the points that you know are going to be easily agreed so that you're basically having little wins along the pathway, along, along the road towards the final contract negotiation. I think it's also important to do your research. Uh, you need to know who you're dealing with. It's pretty silly to walk into a negotiation with another lawyer, in my case, or another industry professional in whatever um, market segment or industry you're in, without knowing who you're dealing with. Their personality will come into effect. 
using the EQ and IQ philosophies are really important. You want to understand who you're dealing with, how to speak to that person, some of their interests. If you can build a rapport with that person from the beginning, that can really help you in your negotiations. Um, dealing with burnouts and ultimatums are important. You don't want to be putting ultimatums on people too early. It's not a do or die scenario. A negotiation is there, as call a negotiation for that, for that point. You are negotiating. You're not demanding. It's not a, not a my way or the highway scenario. It's, it's about um, avoiding things like ultimatums and putting the person offside. And finally, use, use facts, not feelings when negotiating. That's an important point. It can't get too emotional. You need to have some sort of EQ when dealing with a person because a negotiation is obviously dealing with a person, not a, an inert object, and that person has feelings. And the rapport that you build is very, very important. But it's not about putting your feelings forward. It's about putting your facts forward and negotiating in a sensible, uh, cognitive way. So one of the things, and it's funny, reflecting on that, Liam and I were speaking about this too. So much of the negotiation we do is with customers or clients or partners that we need to have an ongoing relationship with. So yeah. interesting how you were really leaning into the soft skills there around not burning a bridge, not leaving collateral damage, being empathetic, understanding the person. Absolutely. You know, would you would you probably support what he says there uh, in terms absolutely. of... Absolutely. And I think getting to yes, which is you referenced that very famous book and, and the, yes. the yes is on the way. It's kind of like a boxing mm, match. You need a is. few... You need a few yeah, you know, a few little hits and before you can get to the one where you actually probably in probably a bit too competitive analogy, but I definitely agree with you. And uh, Jamie, I think um, the way in which uh, emotion plays out in negotiation is, is actually really important. So I think a lot of the literature around negotiation is about being cool and collected um, and of course doing your research, but ultimately you're dealing with a human who is fallible, who is imperfect um, and who wants to feel like they're going to feel like they're going to get a good outcome, not just objectively get a good outcome. Um, and because we're going to transact with that person again and again and again, um, especially in, in, in our business, but, but that, that's true for every industry. You know, mm. even, if it's a, even if you have a construction contract, you know, there's only a few construction suppliers who can perhaps build the type of buildings that your company is, is going to divest, invest and develop. So you're going to have a continuing relationship. So the way you conduct yourself is important. And so the EQ is, is critical. And so for me, if you, if you ask the same question to me, the, my two things, or so Gavin brilliantly took us through um, that his, his points, were prep, preparation, and EQ and the prep I think the only thing I would build on Gavin's great points were um, be clear on the roles in negotiation you should have three roles only a negotiator a summarizer and an observer on either side um, they're the key three roles in, in negotiation um, and they all need to prep they need to understand exactly as Gavin said who they're talking to um, and define your walkaway position define your concessions and define a wish list but they all need to be colored by what's sensible and reasonable given the parties that you know you're going to be negotiating with. And then combined with the emotion or the EQ, as I said, I couldn't agree with Gavin more. You can't be bolshy. You can't go hot in and, you know, as soon on The Apprentice and be like, nah, we're doing, like, as Alan Sugar says, I can't do his, his, his accent, but um, he's from East London and I'm, and I'm not, sadly. Um, but it, it, the, the, biggest, the biggest emotion, if I was to say, is a hallmark of a, of a great negotiator is curiosity. So when a party says no, it's well, help me understand why that's the case or the one I love to use is under what conditions would it be a yes? So it gets them thinking about a positive more than the, the, the no. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. You know, it's, there's a book I read, um, which I was going to reference at the end called Never Split the Difference. It was the head 
international hostage negotiator for the FBI for 20 years, mm. wrote a book on business negotiation and just fantastic because I think his whole premise was that when you're negotiating in business, there's the, the, the premise that both parties are actually rational people. He says when you're dealing with a, a bank robber, a warlord, a despot, a hostage taker, that goes out the window. So there's a completely different way that you have to engage, but so much of it is around those questions. Um, let's talk about something that's I suppose a little bit more specific to the media sales process. There's a million dollar advertising contract. All publishers want to secure that. It's been briefed out to market by the agency. We obviously want to get that piece of business and the directive from the CEO or the the sales director is win it at all costs. How do we actually still stand firm on terms without it costing us the deal, particularly when you've got competitors who are willing to make concessions on terms that we aren't. So I guess, Gavin, you know, we were speaking off offline before. It's somewhat similar to, uh, I guess, a tender process where you've got multiple competing parties all vying for that same opportunity. How do you still have leverage in those situations? I guess in the legal perspective, which is the same with all businesses, but I'll touch on the legal aspect from my experience, is if some, some law firm out there is able to do documents for $2,000 plus GST, and my firm typically does higher quality documents with that are specifically drafted for a purpose. Great language there. For much Not more, more expensive, higher quality. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It'll take us a little bit more time and there'll be more attention to detail. Mm. However, the price is not quite the same. They're not, you're not comparing apples with apples. It's about educating the client and, and making them understand you often do get what you pay for. But so, so the bottom line is not the the clincher. It's not it's not the be all and end all. It's about the it's about what you actually receive for the money. So, I think it's important when you're competing in a tender process to make it clear what they're going to be receiving. I think that's the same in all industries. What do you think, Liam? I mean, I think in our world, what we would be talking about here is a very competitive marketplace with a lot of publishers who fundamentally offer somewhat the same service and or product. I'll try and give a tangible example for, for, for listeners because um, let's say um, there is, uh, a, a, let's say we're, we're negotiating for a radio brief, of course, um, or an audio brief, I should say, um, and there is, um, a, a, let's say, a party that is going to offer more competitive cancellation terms than, than, than another party. I'll just give it a concrete example to illustrate the point. So in that instance, if you are a, a business who thinks, actually, we can't offer those terms, I think you've got to default to curiosity in your negotiation style and go, okay, well, help me understand why you think those terms are reasonable. What are those terms trying to achieve? Um, And then this is also where there is a value in potentially um, a third party. So I've seen specialist procurement, pitch consultants, for example, who can give context on what, if whether what's being asked is actually reasonable versus the market. What, because there are market norms, um, although, you know, they are, they can vary quite a lot. So that adds a layer of objectivity, because if a party, if the negotiating party believes that what they're asking for is, 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 is possible and reasonable, you need to really unpick why they believe that. And then secondly, which is exactly what Gavin said, it's having the confidence and, and ultimately the knowledge and the belief that what you are offering is 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 the right thing. It's premium. It is it is right for what they they they, they want to achieve. And then from that, if you really really have that, you will be prepared to walk away. Um, and and I think you should be prepared to walk away. If if another if another party can offer something that you can't, and it is and it's such it's such an offer that it would be detrimental to your revenue, your business, and ultimately your people, because that's also critical. Then don't do it. Mm. Um, you, as we've said, you're going to go negotiate again and again and again. Um, and I, you wish the other party well, but I'd be very curious to see how they fulfill that and whether they get the client really gets what they want. Well, that's a. I mean, if you look at it multidimensionally, this is one of my one of my great concerns because I've always thought that the relationship starts when the deal is actually signed in many ways. And if you've 
if you've had a contentious negotiation or if you've had some collateral damage you've got to clean up you now have to do business with that person you need to fulfill your end of the contract and hold them accountable to do it too but when we're at that pointy end of the negotiation where seemingly and I, I speak from the perspective of a you know my time as a media salesperson it can often feel like in certain scenarios price is the governing deciding factor as to whether you will be successful or not but in that instance i'd be i'd be curious like you know i I often ask and it's quite a confronting question what what is the weighting to price in this negotiation Mm. what are your scoring criteria um and that creates an objective conversation and then it will force the other person forces the the word using intentionally to really rethink why they're doing this and on on what criteria that that they they have and if they don't have criteria that should be an alarm bell because if they're preparing for a negotiation they should they should have criteria the interesting thing about negotiation too on on what you mentioned before about cancellation policies and things like that getting the ability to get out of contracts if someone's Mm. negotiating very very hard on a legal legal contract or a a media contract or any contract that's distilled down to contractual terms whatsoever if there's terms in there that enable them to get out of this contract easily, that's a bit of a worry. It's a bit mm. of a red flag, isn't it? Mm. If they want if they want more favourable terms to not pay or get out of the contract, you might want to rethink whether it's worth getting involved in that contract in the first place as well. Might be a bit of a red flag. In in a legal context, Gavin, I'm curious to know what the the dynamic is. Let's say it's a it's a negoti- a commercial negotiation, but it is somewhat adversarial in terms of you've got a party that's quite bullish that have put price as the deciding, you know, as the, as the sole or not the sole, but as the determining factor as to whether a deal can get done or not. They're not readily volunteering any sort of information around other non-tangibles. Are there any techniques you could use around questioning to actually uncover any non-monetary terms that might be, you know, relevant to this party or might be for want of a better term used as leverage in a negotiation? It's an interesting question because when, when lawyers get involved in negotiations, often it's after the parties have had their commercial negotiation first. Right. So if the parties have talked about price, and that's an, and in your question you mentioned that's all they've talked about really, that's quite common. It'll, when, once the lawyers get involved, they, they, they receive the information in a term sheet or a heads of agreement or just by speaking with their own client, and the information is very limited. So you ask the question... When it's just price and there's nothing else, how do you get more information? Well, the interesting thing for lawyers is that they always need to get more information. We, we go to our client and say, look, that's fantastic. You're going to be buying this, this item for this amount of money, but what are the terms of payment? What happens if you don't buy it? What, what are we actually buying? Is it adequately described? And there's, there's a whole range of other things. For example, another situation might be a lease. If, if two parties have negotiated the lease of a building, and it's for X amount of dollars for X amount of years. And they think, deal's done, let's get the lawyers to draft up the lease, we're ready to go. There's much more to it than that. And now, if they haven't agreed on price, there could be other ways to get the price to be slightly movable. Because if, they, if, they, if they're negotiating on price very hard on a lease and can't seem to find an equal ground, once you bring in other items that are, that are important, say fit-out contributions, the, the length of the lease, offering um, option periods, um, the ability, whether there's a make good or not, the amount of security deposit required. These other terms bring context to the, to the deal and can affect the price as well. Mm. So asking more questions about what surrounds the deal can create some movement on price, but also gets more context into the deal as a whole. Yeah, and I think, and I want to jump to you in a second, Liam, but I think from my personal experience, I, I think, you know, having been in the sales director role for a while now, 
you do have people out there at the front line that are the negotiating contracts. They're looking at the revenue outcome. So they might go, look, we've just won half a million dollars, you know, in a new contract. How good is this? Let's high five. And unfortunately, um, there's a depth to the analysis that has to come. You know, the profit is made in the implementation of the deal, not in getting the booking. There's a cost of doing business. There are multiple internal stakeholders that need to then fulfill that. There's just purely an opportunity cost with, with that person now needing to take their focus away from re- revenue generation to actually implementing that deal. And so this multifaceted approach to, and this, for want of a better kind of expression, this three-dimensional approach to negotiation is so important because it's actually important for you to be able to articulate to your client, look, you're wanting us to do this. Now, look, this is a big piece of revenue, but just so you have context, I need to put four people onto the implementation of this. Now, they draw salaries. I'm extracting them from their core roles. There are other... other elements in my business that I, I now need to deprioritize in order to service this correctly. This this kind of thing of volunteering, this kind of information does allow you to have a more robust dialogue with an advertiser. But as a consequence of having this more multifaceted style of negotiation, um, and maybe I'll start with you, Liam, how do you mitigate a negotiation being protracted or jammed up in bureaucracy and, and maybe getting a little bit distracted in terms of looking at these smaller terms, which seemingly might not be that important at the end of the day? Great question, because time in negotiation um, and very timely, you know, I'm, I'm British. We talk, I look at Brexit and we look at the effect that time has on a negotiation. It's a fascinating part of this discipline and, the, and, the, and this field. Um, I, I think that it comes back to what I said earlier about the roles. So you should have three broad roles in, in negotiation, the lead negotiator, the summarizer, and, and the observer. That the issue, and Gavin's touched on it, is information. Because in the theory of nego- in negotiation, you are negotiating with complete and perfect information as rational beings. If you could show me a negotiation where negotiators had complete and perfect information, I'd, I'd show you a lie. You know, and so it's about the, the context and the, the, the time in which you're negotiating. So I'll give you an example. In, a, in an agency client pitch process, for example, depending on the process, you're going to be exposed to these humans, procurement, maybe other contract managers, across quite a long period. And so it's about reading those cues so you then can package, just like the lease example, other things of value so when you do get to talk about price, you've got all the information there to have a very rich and full picture of what the overall deal looks like and not just the headline number. And, and then that, if you follow that process, and you and it, this is a hard thing to do, right, to run negotiation tight and to time because in, information comes at different times. You may have different people playing a negotiator across that time period. So it comes to clear roles from the start asking the right questions throughout the whole process. Um, and again, drawing up a concession, a wish list, and then that should allow you to run negotiation to quite a tight roster. Um, but you, but then you also have to remember that potentially the other party doesn't have the same time pressures as you. Um, and um, you don't know perhaps how many other parties are contracting and negotiating at that final at that final stage. Mm. Um, and so I, we've, I, we've all probably experienced it. When you are in that fi- what you believe a final stage, they may give you some quite critical information, but only at that final stage. And so then the zone of possible agreement may move completely based off that information. And they may have purposely waited until that point to tell you that for whatever reason that, that, that they may have, business reason, a stakeholder reason. And so then it's going to be protracted mm. and you can do nothing about it. So then it comes back to how, how, how you can adapt. Um, but with those key roles and with all the context that you've, you've, you've gathered 
and sourced right from the very start of that negotiation process, which can be months, months before, let's say, the final critical meeting. The mechanism of time, Gavin, in a legal context, can you use time to your advantage? Can a, can a shortened negotiation period or an exploding deadline somewhat give you an edge or vice versa? Can you, um, you know, is there an incentive sometimes to actually protract things and to draw them out for the betterment of a deal? Yeah, that's a great question. And in a legal context, that's very important. All, all these deals we're talking about today will eventually be brought and distilled down into to a contract and legal, lawyers will be involved. And let's just think about that for a second. So lawyers are involved, both sides are paying them. And a lot of, a lot of times there's a fixed, fixed quote for the services provided. However, we've also talked today about protracted negotiations and they're clearly out of scope generally in a contract negotiation and contract drafting phase for lawyers. So you're paying them by the hour. So there's, there's a bit of a competing interest here for lawyers. Lawyers are being paid for a service by the hour. There's no real hurry, there's no real motivation to hurry that along. Um, we're dealing with competing in, in influences from the outside world, as we, as we just talked about. Information comes to light at different times, and that makes these negotiations protracted. Lawyers love that. But also lawyers are looking to do a good job for their client. That if, they, if they're too protracted and they don't get things done in a timely manner, they won't get many contract negotiations moving forward. They're losing their ability to... to, to acquire new work and it's also the ethical obligations of lawyers too to make sure they're doing the right job for their client under the law societies of whichever jurisdiction they're in. So there's some real competing competing influences around time there. But generally in, in a context of the negotiation for the participants, it yeah, more money and the more power, the more time they, they're willing to, to, to give to an argument might give them a bit of leverage. Um, and there might be an ability to, to discuss in the contractual negotiations portion if something is done by a particular date, it could, the price could well be adjusted and there could be, there could be penalties or the likelihood of a deal not going through if it goes longer than a particular deadline. Mm. Um, to build on that, if I could, one, one model I have seen um, is contract and price per unit, whatever unit might be, is at the start. So you agree when you, let's say it's a pitch brief, it could even be a media agency brief, you agree, right, these are the terms, this is the cost per, we will accept within a certain range, and we will only take through two or three parties that can meet these heads of agreement commercially, and the cost per at the very start. Yep. And then what that allows, and personally, my view's mixed on it, but what that does allow is it allows you then from that stage to focus exclusively on your thinking, your people and all the other stuff that we do um, as, as, as advertisers, as agencies and as, as partners in, in this business. And so it kind of, in some ways, removes the pressure of time because you're putting it at the start. But of course, th- that, that pre-period, as it were, could be quite long still because you need to get it reviewed. There will be a negotiation within that period as well, but you're just putting it at the start rather than at the end. It's interesting, though, because in a media context, one of the things that's interesting when we talk about a competitive pitch, for example, is that the goalposts are ever-changing based on what the initial proposition is from the market. So if it's an open market brief, we all respond with what we believe is fulfilling the criteria of the brief. We're ready to move into that next phase of negotiation. But then suddenly you get a bit of intel from the negotiator and the agency saying, actually, your competitors are bringing this to the table and it's not something we ask for, but it's of tremendous value and you need to look to mirror that. One of the things that I think can be very difficult in those scenarios is you go, okay, there's a fear of loss coming in here. How do we actually pause for a moment and reflect? But more importantly, do we actually have the leverage to go, if that is of great importance to you, are you willing to concede on any of these other terms? Because if it's just us chasing this ever-changing landscape of this is what success looks like, now it's this, now it's this, 
we have a very difficult time. At some point, you actually just leave all the value on the table and go, this is the best we can do. Let's roll the dice. So are there any, and I know this is your side of the fence, but are there any, um, I guess, quick techniques for how to potentially draw that back in or rein that back in if that's the scenario where the goalposts are ever changing? It's a great question. I think it's incumbent on the agency to um, brief clearly um, and really brief clearly. And that's getting all the best information that they can. And to be honest with you, stick to it. Um, if, 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 you know, out of respect to our partners, like if in that example, something came to like, oh, we, this other person, this other partner said this, and actually, we really want that. Well, that's actually the start of, in my view, if it's that, um, if it really goes to the core of what you're talking about, that should be the reset and the start of a new type of negotiation, because you're changing the, the term or the agreement or what you really want. It sounds like it was quite substantial in, in that instance. Um, and I think being true to that initial brief, it shouldn't then be hard. If, if, if they are getting all the information and being fair, um, and if the, the, the goalposts don't change too much. Yeah, and I can, I can, from experience, that's where it becomes quite heated and quite frustrating, I think, for people, particularly when you look at the resource and the time and energy required oftentimes to put these negotiations or these proposals Absolutely. together. So let's expand on that point and let's explore the role of emotion here because um, my question would be, you know, one, how important is keeping composure? And I hate using this expression, but versus using emotion maybe tactically if you need to. Um, to achieve a successful outcome. And we speak, we've referenced a bit The Apprentice. I don't know if you know, Liam. So Gavin was actually one of the finalists on the first season of Australian Apprentice. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Some time ago, but geez, it feels like yesterday. Yeah. What was it, about nine years ago? Ten years ago. Ten years ago. Wow. I'm going to now frantically YouTube that when I go home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well, you look exactly the same as you did ten years ago, Gavin. You've kept in good shape. Here's a bit shorter. (laughs) But the the thing I I think was interesting about that, and I obviously met Gavin subsequent to that, but um, I'm sure at one point when I met you I said one of the things that was really notable about, about Gavin on that show versus maybe the other candidates what, or the other people vying for the position was his demeanor was always very collected very measured very calm uh, is that a deliberate strategy you use Gavin is that your personality do you if you're going into a negotiation actually dial that up and do you bring the heat if you need to how does how does that approach kind of work and what is the role of emotion in your negotiation style Look, I think for me personally, that is that is my style. I'm I'm pretty relaxed in negotiations, and particularly these days, because we're we're an advocate for a client anyway. So it, the the negotiation is not as emotional for the lawyer as it is for the client. The outcome is much more important for the client, and they're emotionally invested in it. Lawyer's job is there to not only help with the commercial negotiation, but to consider the legal implications, and then to document that in in a satisfactory way to make it enforceable. Um, so I think generally from my personal perspective, it's, it's calm and collected and I'll let the clients get the, get the emotional side of things. But there's definitely a time and a place for emotion and it works for some people. Absolutely. You have to be objective and calm and collected. Um, and I think it's interesting you say yeah, you, by representing your client, you take some of the emotion out of it and you can be objective, which is the, one of the values of your business and our business too. Yes. Um, so I, I, I couldn't ag- agree more. Um, the one thing I'll say on emotion though is that I read a really interesting article around negotiation it being a bit like being an athlete. You do have to, before you go into a negotiation, there is a, some people would say, a warm-up or there is some type of prep you need to do personally before you before you get in there. I'm not saying do a thousand burpees or skip skip around the block. La, but, la, 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 la. But, you, but, but, but you do need to get into the right mind frame. Mm. And negotiation is a, is a discipline, is a skill, and it can be practiced. So um, with that practice comes better control and selective use of emotion in a negotiation um and you know everyone you know no one wants i think no one wants to necessarily walk away without a deal being done 
they what they want to feel like they're satisfied. Um, and th there has to be exactly as Gavin said earlier, it's not a win lose, everyone's got to have a win. Um, and so with that comes emotion and you can't neglect the role of that in a successful negotiation. Lawyers too are mediators um, in day-to-day in, in -day operation, but there's obviously specific jobs for lawyers being mediators and certain lawyers are very skilled in that area. And I think mediators that do, do, do well in their craft, negotiating outcomes for well, litigation type matters and um, family, family dispute matters and those sorts of disputes um, the lack of emotion and keeping a very, very clear, calm, level playing field, it really does work well in those situations as mm. well. And mm. I think you, you lose your, um, I, we talk about credibility in negotiation, like credibility um, manifests in various forms of negotiation. If you, um, your, your position is unmovable and you're not showing any view to concede on anything, you lose credibility quite quickly because you're not a reasonable objective party in, in negotiation. And another great way of losing credibility is showing unnecessary emotion. Um, and you lose, lose that quite fast. Um, and then of course it breaks the whole um, potential or zone of agreement will shrink and shrink and shrink if you are showing levels of emotion that aren't proportionate to, to, to the other party and what you're trying to achieve. It's interesting when you talk about that because it can be quite confronting going in to someone that, you know, that is a, for want of a better um, example, like an Alan Sugar from the UK Apprentice type character that is owns the frame in the room, is the power person, has the um, has the status, has the prestige, you know, very much the dominant person in the room. Irrespective of, of what comes to that negotiation, there's almost a level of, of power imbalance there. And it's interesting trying to go, how do you then, if the, you've got a person like that that's just barking orders and unwilling, unwavering and unwilling to concede, how do you manoeuvre in, in between that? And a great... Um, uh, I guess a great sort of line of questioning here for you guys is if you've come up against a negotiator like that, what's the technique that's maybe fared well for you? Uh, two points on that for me. Yes, I have. Um, I think you have to remember why you are negotiating. So for example, and this is the value of context and homework and research and a good nous for emotional intelligence. If you are in that negotiation because there's another party and the, the other party actually wants to go with the, the, your competitor um, and you're there to validate that decision or, f or perhaps you believe force the preferred party to concede on something, um, then you know, you, you're more licensed to walk away. Um, and that's a position of power. Um, that you've 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 understood this in that relationship. It's hard to call that, mm. but with enough nous, you you can make an assumption. So, and that's my first point. And that might in that Lord Sugar example, he might want to go with somewhere else, and he's just trying to force them to an even better position. And you're just the the thing on the side to make them do it, right? Um, and the second thing, um, in a position, if I was negotiating with with Lord Sugar, um, let's say, is um, if he's there, he's got an interest in in, in doing a deal with you. Um, so it's having the confidence to know that, um, not getting arrogant, um, and, and reading him just like anyone else. Yes, he's brilliant at what he does, but he will still have emotional cues. He will have micro expressions. He will um, hopefully be clear on what he wants. Um, and so it is trying to just remove the person from the deal. And, and, and hear what they're saying. Um, but it is hard when, when someone's in a position of power and in the media context, if you um, are again, sort of going in to negotiate with an agency who is massive um, and they've got massive volume and, and they have a reputation in market for being quite bolshy or, or aggressive in negotiation, comes back to being prepared to walk away, confidence in your product um, and, and remaining calm um, uh, in that type of demeanor. Mm. I, I agree 100% with that, but it also takes a little bit of skill in some cases too, where you can 
drag them down the road just sufficiently and enable them to come to a place where they think they've made the decision themselves. Mm. A lot of people, especially those big bolshy personalities, have a level of arrogance. Um, whether it's deserved or not, often it is, and they've achieved a lot. But you ne they, they need to, in every case, it seems, to come to the conclusion that they've made that decision themselves, whether they did or they didn't. So it's about leading them down and enabling them to make a decision that works for you, but the decision they've made themselves. Mm. You know, one of the um, different scenarios that I heard in this uh, in this book, Never Split the Difference with the FBI negotiator, was this theory of mislabeling a situation deliberately to extract more information. So the example he uses, he's a commercial negotiator now, so out of the FBI, but he's negotiating the... Uh, the purchase of a commercial property. It's a cash cow business. It's heritage listed, full tenancy. He needs to get it for 60 million. They want to sell it for 70 million. They've got no real motivation to sell that. He's got no information to use as leverage as to why they should accept the 60. Um, and he makes a point of saying, with this type of negotiation, it's okay to not necessarily feel like you're the person in the position of power, but don't be afraid to actually mislabel a situation to extract more information. So what he would do is, in that scenario, go to the real estate agent and basically say, this is a cash cow business, this is heritage listed. The only reason you'd be meeting with me to sell it would be that you're unsure of the economic viability of the project moving forward. So why are we, why are we, why would I purchase that? In that scenario, the real estate agent goes, no, 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 it's it's rock solid. It's actually just they've got some cash flow issues. So it's it's this interesting kind of world, and I don't really like these dirty tactics or techniques, but I found that as a really interesting, um, I suppose, just thought process around in a negotiation, sometimes you don't want to be self – the self-preservation thing might not actually fare well for you. Sometimes you can actually position that. And so that's an example I wanted to use, but I wanted to sort of draw this to a close on a question of – can you recall any negotiation you've had where you've just had a really interesting insight like that that has actually fared well for you? So not a dirty tactic, so to speak, but a, a way that's really reframed the entire negotiation process and allowed you to get a successful outcome. And I'll put you on the spot, Liam. Mm, thanks, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, I love the, the, the mislabeling situation. I think that a, a recent um, pitch that I was involved in, I think... Um, one uh, insight or, or one quite compelling realization I had, I suppose quite late in the negotiation process, um, was um, the the importance that the, the the negotiator had, the lead negotiator had, on on ultimately longevity. And so, I think we normally contract and negotiate, of course, to a set time period, like we do, um, but. I believe that I overlooked the importance of the client wanting to renew past a certain time period and a certain time period and go and go even longer potentially, um, and that probably forced us down or, or, or led us down a, a commercial route which um, was um, different to if we knew the the desire for more longevity. And the, and and it's interesting because that information came to light a lot later in the process. By which time we'd already submitted the various things, but based on a shorter time period, and that coloured the view of then other things that we then subsequently submitted. Um, so I think it's um, my learning there is uh, to really understand the, the core motivation um, beyond price. And in this instance, it was longevity and, and stability of, of, of the contract, not just for the strict time period, but the potential for that to just roll over to roll the same over. terms. Yeah. Yep. Does that make sense? It's great. It's great. It's a great sort of parting thought. What about yourself, Gavin? I think what's interesting about this and the dirty tactics angle is to 
just consider how different Australia is to the UK and perhaps in particularly the States. Any episode of Suits will show you that um, the negotiations in each one of those episodes comes down to finding some dirt on somebody. Yeah, it's leverage. Pre- pressure points and leverage. Blackmail, pressure points, leverage. Some sort of little dirty bit of information comes out that gives the other party no choice but to agree to their terms. And for some reason, they either do business in the future or more likely they don't. In Australia, that doesn't really happen as much. I'm sure it does. I'm sure there's some dirt that comes out from time to time. But I think we work on longevity as well. Um, I think we look at having future relationships with the parties we're negotiating with, particularly in a commercial context, in a transactional context, and uh, we st- we steer away from the the suits um, nitpicking and trying to uncover. Yeah, the apparently dirt everybody scenario. everybody has at least four skeletons in their closet, like every human. Every yeah, just yeah. four. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So think about the ones that have a lot more. Hey. <laughs> well, look, I think that's a really good sort of point to end on, guys. And I think we could talk all day about this topic, but I I think in the context of the people listening to this podcast. The, the main sort of overriding message here is that you need to steer away from it just being about price and securing the revenue. You need to look at it as a multifaceted approach. You need to look at the long-term implications and or benefits of having a, a, you know, a negotiation that is actually amicable and that achieves a result for both parties. Any parting thoughts from either of you before we wrap this up? Yeah, the thing to remember is it's a negotiation at the end of the day. Um, each party needs to have a win. Unless it's a context where you want to kill the other person and have all for yourself in a litigation perspective, generally not. In a commercial context, each party needs to have a little win. You want to be working together. There's a buyer and a seller. The buyer wants to get the, get the property or the, the asset at a particular price. The seller also wants to achieve a certain price. Um, or if, it's a, if you're working together in a commercial negotiation that will have a fruitful relationship moving forward, you need to consider that element as well. Awesome summary, guys. Look, as a final thought from me, um, you know, media sales, if nothing else, it's about EQ. It's about this kind of stuff. It's about mental toughness and persistence, absolutely. But as long as you're actually taking some of this information, you're applying it, you're getting incrementally better each day, you are on track to be successful. So what I would say is um, keep driving forward. Have an amazing week. I want to thank you sincerely, Liam Lowenlock, General Manager of UM Brisbane, Gavin McInnes, partner at AJ & Co Lawyers. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. Head to mediasalesmastery.com to help pick the topic, guide the show, and don't forget to subscribe to receive new episodes each week.